go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using one of the few Bibles, that's page 988. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be studying verses, uh, verse 18 today. 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's pray for help. Gracious God, please help us. We desire to understand your word. We desire to believe it. We desire to repent where we've fallen short. We desire to be doers of your word, not hearers only. And Lord, none of that we can do without your spirit's help. So please work by your spirit now. Uh, Give us, Lord, illumination, conviction, repentance, faith. Uh, Please use this time to transform us more into the image of your son. Help me. Uh, Lord, please help me to preach in the power of the Spirit, to speak as when speaking the very oracles of God. We pray for those who don't know you, that you would cause them to be born again, and for those that do, that you'd grow them in the faith. Through Jesus we pray, amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, God's Word says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. May God give us ears to hear his word. Many of my most vivid and favorite memories from childhood uh, have to do with my family's celebrations of Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving holiday was a pretty elaborate ordeal in my family growing up, and as I've aged and developed my own household, I've only come to appreciate all the more what my parents did. I can still remember waking up early on Thanksgiving morning, and already the house was filled with the smell of baking turkey. Anybody remember that? Um, I've always been kind of a reasonably early riser, but my mom must have gotten up at like 4 a.m. to get the turkey in the oven. But there was more than the turkey. Obviously, there was this huge feast that my mom labored all day long to create. Mashed potatoes and gravy, stuffing and green beans. There'd be all sorts of pies and desserts. All day long, she'd be cooking away while my dad is cleaning house and setting up the dining room. Nearly every year, we would have several relatives join us for Thanksgiving. Uh, At least some of my grandparents would be there, Uh, usually some of my aunts and uncles. I had a whole slew of cousins back in New York, and often they'd be there. Uh, Not infrequently, we'd have friends from church over as well. We might have 20 people in our home, and sometimes we actually set up the kids' table in another room, and those were uh, really some of my favorite memories. Now that, again, that I've got my own household, I can hardly fathom how much work my parents went through to pull this off. At maybe 2 in the afternoon, the feasting would begin, And like most kids, my eyes were bigger than my stomach, so I'd pile all this warm, steaming food on my plate and then eat like a quarter of it. And then after the meal, the pies came out, and somehow, even though I was quote-unquote full from my quarter of a plate, I could eat plenty of pie and ask for seconds. Then the rest of the day was spent just kind of hibernating. I would kick back on the couch, maybe watch a bit of TV, maybe doze off. My mom would continue laboring away, cleaning up everything, picking all the turkey off the skeleton and packaging all the leftovers up. My dad would clean up the house. Guests would gradually head home until about maybe 8 in the evening. That's when everything was kind of said and done. Any of you have memories of Thanksgiving like that? That remind you of your childhood? You think about it, but Thanksgiving is a distinctively Christian holiday. Most of our holidays, they celebrate our accomplishments, things that we've done be it 4th of July, Labor Day, Veterans Day, New Year's Day, uh, those are times where we pause and, as Americans, celebrate our accomplishments and realize there's nothing wrong with that. that, That's appropriate to do in its own place and time. 
But Thanksgiving is different in that it's supposed to be a time when we get the focus off ourselves and thank God for his generosity. It's supposed to be a time where we shift away from what we have done to what God has blessed us with. If you doubt that, I want to read to you a section from George Washington's original Thanksgiving proclamation. Uh, This actually says so much about the intent of this holiday. But listen to what President Washington said. He said, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. All right, big words, it's a mouthful. But did you catch that Congress wanted him to do this? It's hard to imagine something like that taking place today, but it did. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November, next to be devoted by these people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being, who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may all then unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. That was the thinking behind the first Thanksgiving. Now, why is it that we who fear, love, and trust God, why should we thank him for his blessings? I mean, in some ways, it's God's job to be generous, and it's our job to take advantage of those blessings, so why ought we to pause and give him thanks? Why is it that gratitude, thanksgiving, why ought that characterize our individual Christian lives, our families, our church? What does failure to give thanks reveal about the state of our hearts? And what does gratitude reveal about the health of our souls? These are some of the questions that, with God's help, we're going to be considering both this morning and next Lord's Day in conjunction with our study of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Well, it's with this that we come to our 36th sermon through 1 Thessalonians. And I can hardly believe I'm saying that. I can't believe we've been in this book that long. It's actually turned out to be one of the longer series I've ever created. And yet, it has been a very enjoyable book for me to study. Uh, You know, different books hit you in different ways, and this has been one of the more personally edifying books that I've had the privilege of preaching and teaching, and perhaps that's why we're going so slow through it. I'm actually somewhat sad that it's almost done. Just to quickly set this morning's study in context, if you remember uh, from being here, we believe that 1 Thessalonians was written roughly 50 AD by the Apostle Paul. He writes this book to a very young church. They've only been Christians for about two years. Two years before this, they were worshiping Zeus and Athena and all those Greek gods and totally ignorant of the gospel. But then Paul came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. You can read about this in the book of Acts. This was a very large, a very diverse, metropolitan Roman city. He stays there for three Sabbaths preaching the gospel. He helps organize those who believe into a local church, but then after nothing more than uh, maybe six months, he's driven out of the city by persecution. Do you remember talking about these things? So Paul writes this letter a little bit after being driven away to do two things. First, he wants to commend them for the work of God that God's done in their lives. But second, he wants to finish up teaching things that he didn't have the opportunity to teach them when he was with them in person. And as we've stressed several times in our study of this book, this church in Thessalonica, remarkably healthy. Again, I know I've made that point, you know, to, to the point of redundancy, but I hope this sticks with you long term. I don't think there's a church in the entire New Testament that's as healthy as the church in Thessalonica. As we've worked our way through this book, we've learned all sorts of lessons. Lessons about the centrality of the local church, 
uh, what a healthy church looks like, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, lessons about sexual purity, about living in light of Jesus' second coming and the day of the Lord. Again, it's been a really blessed study, and if you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to or watch some of the messages, not because I'm such a great preacher, but because the Bible is such a great book, and 1 Thessalonians is so helpful. Now, if you look at your Bibles, you can see we're here to the conclusion of the letter. And from chapter 512 on through the end of the book, Paul gives us a wide variety of commands and a wide variety of topics. I mean, if you just skim your eyes over this section, we've got commands here on honoring your pastors, commands on admonishing the idol, commands on rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, a wide variety of commands. And if you come here regularly, you know that we've made the decision, the intentional decision, to basically consider each of these commands one by one. We want to really get their meaning, their intent, kind of the worldview that they're built on, their applications and implications for today. Uh, And that's why, again, we're going so slow. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only, and we think that a very careful, intentional study of each of these commands will help us do that. And here in these closing commands, we come to one about giving thanks in all circumstances. Now let's begin by discussing the meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. The meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, what is God commanding us to do in this verse? Well, in verse 18, Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, frankly, so much of this verse is rather simple and straightforward. We are called to give thanks, to show gratitude, to verbally, or at least in our hearts, to express appreciation for gifts that we've received. And in context, it's fairly obvious that this this thanks is to be directed to God. Uh, Not first and foremost to, say, family or friends, not to coworkers or our boss, not to policemen or firemen, though, of course, it's appropriate from time to time to thank them. In context, however, this is thanking God for the blessings he's given us. Why do we know that? Well, a couple of reasons. First, if you look at the context, the verse just before and the verse just after all have to do with our relationship with God. I mean, just glance back to verse 17. What's that? Pray without ceasing. Now, to whom do we pray? We don't pray to humans, but to God. To pray to humans is idolatry, but to pray to God is appropriate. But then jump forward to verse 19. We'll study this in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Now, who's the Spirit? It's obviously the Holy Spirit. So clearly, in the immediate context, we're talking about commands that pertain to how we interact with and relate to God. The other reason why we're sure this command is not talking about thanking other humans, though again, that's a good and appropriate thing to do, But again, in context, it's talking about God. The reason why we're sure of that is that phrase, in all circumstances. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. You think about it, but there are an awful lot of circumstances that we encounter, but humans really don't have much to do with. For example, we have no control over the weather, whether it's warm and sunny, cold and rainy. We have no ultimate control over life and death. Of course, we should, you know, take our vitamins and wear our seatbelt. But at the end of the day, we could get struck by lightning this afternoon. We have no control over that. And humans have no control over the future. We can try to predict what next week's going to hold, but our predictions are only predictions, and more often than not, they're wrong. But there is somebody who is in control of all circumstances, and who is that? The Lord. Matthew 10, 29, Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Our God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1, 11. We know that God can do all things and that no purpose of his can be thwarted, Job 42, 2. And listen to Deuteronomy 32, 39. See, now, even I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 
You see, only God is involved in all circumstances. Only God is in control of absolutely everything, no matter how great, no matter how small. Only God is sovereign over every aspect of life. Therefore, it stands to reason that this command pertains only to him since we're to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it might actually surprise you how frequently we are called to give God thanks. It surprises me how often the Bible calls us to do this. Uh, This is seemingly one of the big themes of the Bible. It's almost like one of the reasons why God created us was so that we would give him thanks. Psalm 91.1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Isaiah 12.1, I will give you thanks, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, always remembering you in our prayers. Revelation 11.17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is, who, and who is to come. Realize commands to get, give God thanks or variations of that, you know, basically using synonymous language, there are over a hundred of those in Scripture. A hundred commands to give God thanks. You think about it, I couldn't think of another thing we're commanded to do a hundred times in Scripture. You know, there are many things that are good to do. You know, it's good to read the Bible, good to go to church, good to tell your friends about Jesus, good to, uh, you know, work hard at your job and love your spouse. All of those things are good, but none of them were commanded to do a hundred times. I'm not at all trying to diminish their significance, but for whatever reason, God has said at least a hundred times, one of your responsibilities as a human is to give God thanks. Now, now let's zero in on that phrase, all circumstances. I want us to think carefully about this. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. Now again, this is rather simple and straightforward, and it's easy to sort of mentally assent to, but it's actually quite difficult to put into practice. I mean, in some ways, it's easy to give thanks when life's going reasonably well, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to give thanks when you and your loved ones are healthy, when you got plenty of money in the bank, plenty of food in the fridge, when jobs going well, relationships. I mean, that's, it's easy to give thanks then, isn't it? But you look at this command, and it's not just to give thanks when things are going well, but what? Give thanks in all circumstances. And the more you really think about what that all circumstances includes, the harder this command becomes to obey. Am I to give thanks when money is tight or after I've lost my job? Am I to give thanks when a loved one or myself is diagnosed with cancer? Am I, am I to give thanks when my kids are driving me nuts, when me and my spouse can't get along, when, when just living in this crazy world is driving me bonkers? Am I still to give thanks then? Am I to give thanks when somebody's betrayed my trust, sinned against me, maybe sinned against me in a very painful way? The answer to all of those questions is yes, absolutely yes. But I'll be the first to admit that that is not easy to do. In fact, it's impossible to do without the help of the Holy Spirit. And the reasons why we're commanded to give thanks in all circumstances and why this is, includes even the painful parts of life, the reasons for that are really two. First, I remind you that this is a command. First uh, Thessalonians 5.18, this is not like a gentle suggestion to you know, put into practice if you feel like it. No, this is a command of Almighty God. What that implies is a couple of things. First, it implies that God, if if you're a Christian, God's going to give you the grace to do that. God gives to believers his Holy Spirit, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he helps us to put God's commands into practice. And if you're a believer, you've got the Holy Spirit, and what that means is that you can do this. But the, the other reason why we're able to give thanks in all circumstances, it does come back to our understanding of the sovereignty of God. 
The sovereignty of God is one of the more practical doctrines. I know that we get all esoteric about it and philosophical, and, uh, but in reality, if you really believe that God is working all things together for good, and if that all things actually means all things, all of a sudden you've got a mechanism whereby you can actually give thanks in all things. I mean, consider what the Bible says on this. It could not be clear. Genesis 50, 20, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. And somebody sinned against you in a very painful way, betrayed your trust, uh, deeply hurt you, Yes, that's awful. Yes, they'll, they'll experience discipline or chastening for that. And yet, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Think about that verse. You ever encountered somebody's anger and it's like just terrified your socks off? I've had that happen a couple of times. It's not fun. But somehow, in the good providence of God, God's going to work that together for his glory and your good. Romans 8.28, it's a verse we've all memorized, but I do wonder at times if we actually believe it, myself included. You know, I'll confess there are times that I can assent to the sovereignty of God, but in my daily practice, I'm kind of denying it in my living. But what does Romans 8.28 say? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So good and bad, happy and sad, blessing and adversity, God is working all of this together to advance his good, wise, loving plan. Through health and cancer, prosperity and bankruptcy, happy family relationships and divorces and wayward children. God is somehow orchestrating all of it, again, for his glory and my good. And believing that is the only thing that's going to enable me to give thanks in all circumstances. Listen to Oleon Morris. He says, Paul had learned that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Even in our difficulties and trials, God is teaching valuable lessons. And they are to be welcomed and used accordingly. This conviction of the divine sovereignty and providence leads to the command, give thanks in all circumstances. It may not be easy to see the bright side of a particular trial, but if God is over all, then his hand is in that trial. His own cannot but recognize his goodness and make their thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for one another that we can put this into practice. What we're talking about here is not easy. Again, it's easy to give thanks for ice cream and sunny days and happy children. It's not easy to give thanks when things are going poorly and not as we would desire. So please, pray for one another, pray for me, that God would give us faith in his sovereignty that we might give thanks in all circumstances. Now, most of this verse is rather straightforward, but there is debate about the final clause in the verse. What does the clause, this is the will of God, refer to? Does it refer to the all circumstances? Or does it refer to the act of giving thanks? You see the difference? You know, is Paul saying that whatever circumstance you find yourself in, no matter how painful, that is God's will for you? Or is he saying that giving thanks, no matter what, is God's will for you? See what I'm saying? Now, I'll be quick to emphasize that there is a sense in which whatever circumstance you find yourself in, that is God's will for you at that moment. This is the entire doctrine of God's permissive will. And I can prove this from other passages of Scripture rather easily. Absolutely everything, including human sin, our mistakes, the works of the devil, all of that falls under the permissive will of God. Or to use the words from Francis Havergal's famous hymn, Like a River Glorious, every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. All of that is totally true, and yet I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in this verse. The reasons for that actually are rather technical and have to do with Greek grammar, so I realize you're kind of trusting me here, but if you want to double-check this, go get any good commentary and look it up. But grammatically, the phrase, this is the will of God, must refer back to the act of giving thanks, not the all circumstances, though again, from other verses, we can believe that God is sovereign over all circumstances. Did you follow that? 
Now, if this is the right interpretation, that what this, then what this means is that here we have a vital part of God's will for your life. Whoever you are, this might be the first time you've set foot in this congregation. This is a vital part of God's will for your life, to give thanks in all circumstances. I remember growing up that we had this idea of God's will, that it was this sort of like secret code that you had to crack. And if you didn't crack it just right, you'd basically waste your life. You know, God had this secret plan to be, let's, let's say, a butcher who lived in New York City, who marries this woman named Maria, and I've got to have four kids, and I've got to work there in New York City for 40 years, uh, and if I somehow miss that, I've missed God's best for my life, and I've wasted my life. Thankfully, I don't hear people talk that way about God's will very often these days, but it was pretty Realize that's not the right way to think about God's will. God's will is not this hidden secret that you need to go to like a fortune teller to figure out. It's not like reading tea leaves. No, God's will, at least the part that you're responsible for, is clearly spelled out in Scripture. And that will revealed in Scripture, it's surprisingly simple and straightforward. What's God's will for your life as revealed in Scripture? Well, it would include things like trusting in the Lord Jesus and being forgiven of your sins. Once you've trusted Jesus, making your faith public through water baptism. Regularly engaging with God through prayer and meditation on his word. Joining a good local church where you can grow and serve and fellowship. Working hard at your job, loving your spouse, honoring your parents, raising up your kids in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. All of those and much more is God's will for your life. And here's the thing, none of those are hidden secrets. You know, again, you don't need to go to some sort of person with a, with a crystal ball for, for, for you to know that, that I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. The Bible has made this crystal clear. If you put the principles that are clear in Scripture into practice with the help of the Holy Spirit, you're doing God's will, whether you're a butcher or a plumber or whatever. And then you don't need to really worry about figuring out the secret stuff because God's Spirit will guide you. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we might do all the words of this law. Worry about the main things, the plain things in Scripture, and leave the hidden secrets up to God. In addition to all of that, what that also means is that giving thanks in all circumstances is part of that will of God for your life. You know, you might never know if or when you'll get married. You might not know what career or calling you're going to pursue. You might not know if you're going to wind up a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, and, and that's okay. But what we can say for sure is that it's God's will for you to figure out how to give thanks in all circumstances. To look to God and to give him thanks no matter what's going on, no matter how deep the pain is, I can tell you with 100% certainty that that is part of God's will for your life. And what's more, the flip side of that is also true. If you're refusing to give God thanks, you're out of God's will. Again, growing up, there was this odd idea that you could be out of God's will. If I made this inadvertent mistake, and you know, everything's going along well, and I'm a butcher in New York City, and you know, I've been working there for 40 years, but I marry Susie and not Maria... Uh, oh my goodness, I've ruined my life, and, you know, and Susie and Maria, they're equally godly, equally you know, blessed and whatever. Uh, I just made a mistake, and now I'm outside of God's will. Again, thankfully, the scriptures don't really speak that way. Uh, they reveal to you what God's will is, and if you're doing that, you are in God's will, and if you're not, that's when you're in trouble. What you need to stress over is not these secrets that aren't revealed in the Bible, but the clear things, and again, one of the clear things is to give thanks in all circumstances. So in light of all of this, I want you to examine your own life. Look into your heart. How are you doing at giving thanks in all circumstances? Really, based on all that we've said here, take a careful look at your life. How are you doing at giving thanks in all circumstances? 
Are you recognizing God's good hand in every joy and trial? Do you not merely confess God's sovereignty? And you know, maybe you're able to argue persuasively for it in Sunday school. But do you actually recognize this in the day-to-day life, in the joys and in the trials, in the happiness and the sadness? Do you really practically embrace the sovereignty of God? How are you doing at giving thanks in all circumstances? That's just a bit on the meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Now let's talk about the application of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. The application. As always, we want to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And let me tell you what I had intended to do under this point. And can you guess what happened here? Once again, as I put this together, I wound up with way more information than I have time to share it in. So even with the uh, folks back there using the uh, PowerPoints, this is not going to line up exactly with what you've got. But what I had intended to do is first give you some reflections on complaining and then some, some reflections on giving thanks. And I wanted to do that for two reasons. First, in the Bible's theology of how we change and grow, there's always this put-off, put-on principle. I put off a sinful habit, and I replace it with a godly habit. If I'm putting on thanksgiving, that means there's something I'm putting off, and the putting off is the complaining. You see, so that's why I wanted to give you some reflections on complaining. Additionally, if we're to give thanks in all circumstances, that includes the circumstances where we're usually tempted to complain. You know, again, I remind you that it's easy to give thanks for ice cream and sunshine and happy children and whatnot, but when things aren't going so well, what are we tempted to do? Tempted to complain, gripe, get grumpy. Man, can you believe this is so awful, this is so awful? So because the very situations where we're supposed to be giving thanks, instead we're complaining, the very situations where we're supposed to let our light shine before others, instead we're turning into an avenue of sin, that's why I want to talk a little bit about complaining. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a few reflections on complaining right now. Uh, Lord willing, come back next week. I'll give you a few more reflections on complaining. Again, we're talking about this to cultivate thank, giving a thanks. And then most of the next week, we'll, be talked about, we'll talk about actively cultivating thankfulness. How do I cultivate a grateful heart? Uh, that's where we're going next week, so come back for that. Well, let me give you a few quick reflections on complaining. If you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know that complaining is a sin that God's people should not tolerate. Now, we often do. Uh, for some people, we just kind of wink at it, but it's, it's a sin, and we, we need to take it seriously. Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining or arguing, that you might be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You want a really easy way to stand out as a gospel witness in your workplace or in your family? Learn how to do everything without complaining and grumbling. That, That will so stick out. Eventually, people will take notice and be like, what's wrong with you? You don't complain about the weather. You don't complain about the government. You don't complain about how much we don't get paid here. What's up? And you'll have a wonderful opportunity to give a reason for the hope that's within you. So complaining is a sin, a sin we need to fight and not tolerate, but that does raise the question, what is complaining? If this is something we want to fight, we need to define it carefully, lest we inadvertently do it. So what is complaining? Well, in reflecting on this a good bit, I came to the conclusion that complaining can take one of two forms. Okay, complaining can take one of two forms, and either of these, or sometimes both at the same time, are complaining. The first form of complaining would be, and I'm going to read this, but it should be on the board. Um, Pay attention, and hopefully this makes sense. But verbalizing discontentment, usually over something that is lacking, to somebody who can do nothing to fix the situation. Verbalizing discontentment, usually over something that is lacking, to somebody who can do nothing to fix the situation. So let me give you an illustration. Say you run into your neighbor at the mailbox, 
and you say to your neighbor, neighbor, the worst thing happened to me the other night. I went to the steakhouse. They burned my steak till it felt like a piece of wood bark. It was awful. I tried to chew it up. I couldn't chew it up. It was just the worst thing. I can't believe that happened. Can you believe that, neighbor? Now, is that complaining? It is, but why? It's complaining in part because your neighbor has nothing to do with the steakhouse. He can't, you know, unless he owns the steakhouse, which that would mess up my entire illustration, and that wasn't the point. But, you know, he can't really do anything to improve the quality of your steak. You're just sort of venting over discontentment, and it's complaining. Well, if this is complaining, what this means is that communicating discontentment to, say, the waiter at the steakhouse is not complaining. You know, let's say, again, we're at the steakhouse, and your steak is just, you know, cooked to ashes, and you say, waiter, can you see the steak? This, this is not, you know, I asked for a medium rare, and this, this looks like a piece of tree bark. What's, what's going on? Uh, would, you, would you get that fixed? That's not complaining, because again, the waiter has something to do with that. You see what I'm saying? So that's one form of complaining, when you express discontentment to those that have nothing to do with the situation. The other form of complaining is expressing discontentment, including to those who have something to do with the situation, but you do it out of great arrogance and pride. You express discontentment, but again, it's characterized by pride and arrogance. So thinking about our steakhouse illustration, waiter brings you the steak, it's all cooked to ashes. You call the waiter over and you say, waiter, do you know who I am? Look at this steak and then look at me. Do you think I'm worthy of such a steak? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with this establishment? This, this, is, this is not right. Okay. That's complaining. Even though you're talking to the guy that can you know, fix things, there's such arrogance and pride there that it's really overboard. So I think if either or sometimes both of those are at the same, going on at the same time, that's complaining. You with me so far? Now, thinking about the storyline of the Bible, who would be the classic example of complaining in Scripture? Who are the grumblers, the murmurers in the Bible? Do you remember? It would be the people of Israel under Moses' leadership. Obviously, they weren't the only folks that complained in the Bible. There are lots of examples of this. But I checked this out. There are 18 individual references to Israel complaining while under Moses' leadership. 18, which is quite a few. For example, Numbers 14.2, all the people of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Israel complained an awful lot, and sometimes God in his mercy heard their complaints and provided what they were looking for. I mean, this is why God gave them water from the rock. He gave them quail uh, because they complained. And God is merciful sometimes, and here's our complaints. But other times, God was enraged with their complaining. Listen to this section from Exodus 16. The sons of Korah assembled themselves and complained against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have gone too far, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Then the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all his goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed up over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. You follow that? You might remind yourself of that the next time you catch yourself complaining. Again, I know that this is a sin that we kind of tolerate and wink at, uh, but under other circumstances, God caused the earth to crack open and to swallow people up because they were complaining. So maybe just remind yourself of that and thank God that he's merciful. Now, if you think about it, what is complaining but just a violation of the 10th commandment? What's the 10th commandment? Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, what am I doing when I'm complaining? I'm actually sinfully coveting something I don't have. 
I'm coveting a different steak or a different weather or a different spouse or different kids. I'm coveting a different situation in life other than the one the Lord has sovereignly tailored for me right at that moment. That's what I'm doing when I'm coveting, and that's, or pardon me, when I'm complaining, and that's why it's such a serious sin. Now, most people have no clue how much complaining they actually do. I looked into this, and the average person complains between 15 and 30 times every single day. Some more, some less. You've probably known people that complain like hundreds of times a day, and then there are godly people that complain like, you know, virtually never. So the average person is complaining between 15 and 30 times a day. And again, if each of these are sinful, then that's serious. Additionally, and I discovered this from some sociological studies, but in general, the wealthier a person is, the more they complain. You can think through why that might be, but in general, the wealthier the person is, the more they complain. And the reason for that, it appears to be that when we have all of our needs met, uh, we tend to get comfortable, uh, we tend to enjoy all of our stuff, we develop this kind of entitled mentality, and because of that, it's easy to complain. Obviously, we didn't need secular research to tell us. The Bible mentions this. Listen to Deuteronomy 6.10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There is a sense in which the wealthier and more comfortable you become, the greater the temptation to complain becomes. Just think about that. The wealthier and more comfortable you become, the greater the temptation to complain becomes. Now, does that mean we've got to sell all our stuff and live like beggars? No. But what it does mean is that we need to be aware of temptations that accompany different situations in life. We need to know Satan's strategies and prepare for those. Here's another thought about complaining. Realize that nearly all complaining involves self-deception. Realize that nearly all complaining involves self-deception. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, sin has really messed us up big time, and one of the ways that sin has messed us up is that it's really deeply ingrained on our souls, this grass is always greener on the other side way of thinking. If I just had a different house, or a different spouse, or a different bunch of kids, or a different job, or, or a different whatever, then I'd be happy. Can you see how that would really cultivate complaining? We actually see the people of Israel doing this in the wilderness. Listen to Numbers 14, or pardon me, Numbers 11.4. Now the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all to eat but this manna. Now what's wrong with their perception of the situation? How had they fallen to self-deception? You know, think back. Well, what was their condition in Egypt? Were they eating fish for free and cucumbers and leeks and melons and onions and garlic? You know, were they just living high on the hog? No, they, they were slaves. And in all reality, they were probably eating bread crusts and just lukewarm water for every meal. But one of the things, again, that sin has done to us, it leads us to self-deception. You start imagining things are so much better than they actually are. And you and I can fall to this as well. Don't think that this died in the wilderness with the children of Israel. This is ingrained in our flesh. We deceive ourselves into thinking that if only my spouse were different, then I'd be happy. If only my kids were better behaved, then I'd be happy. If only my job paid more, then I'd be happy. If only my church were uh, meeting all of my needs, then I'd be happy. 
When in reality, if that different thing were present, we'd probably just find something else to complain about. I'd encourage you, the next time you catch yourself complaining, and maybe do that this week, you know, sort of have like a radar for complaining. Because again, if most of us are complaining 15 to 30 times a day, uh, you know, maybe be on the lookout for it. But when that happens, when you catch yourself complaining, examine yourself, are there lies here that I'm falling to? How have I participated in self-deception here? Am I really thinking that if I just have X, I'll be fully happy? I suppose that's enough for this morning. We've talked about the meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. I've given you some reflections on complaining. Again, come back next week. I've got a few more reflections on complaining, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about cultivating a thankful heart. But in conclusion, I want you to think about this. What is one thing that you can always give thanks for in all circumstances? Maybe don't say anything out loud yet. But what is one thing that no matter how bad life gets, you can always praise God for it? What is that one unchangeable fixed reality that even if you suffer the loss of all things, you could still have ample reason to give thanks in all circumstances? I'm talking about the person and work of Jesus. Even if you can't think of a single thing to thank God for, even if, let's say you're stuck in Job's trials, lost absolutely everything, your kids and your fortune and your health, still you can praise God that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. No matter how bad and painful and miserable things get, if that's true, you have infinite reasons to give thanks in all circumstances. Why is this, you might ask? Well, the Bible teaches that we were made to know God. This is why we exist, to have a relationship with our Creator. Not just to make money, not just to have fun, not just to see the world, but to have a relationship with the infinite, almighty God. That's why we exist. But the truth of the matter is that we have sinned and rebelled against our Creator. We've rejected Him, rejected His laws, we've tried to live the way we wanted to live, regardless, uh, with, with no regard to how God designed it to be lived. You, I, were all guilty of this. We defy God thousands of times a day, and the fact that our hearts are slow, so slow to give thanks is simply proof of this. Now, because God is righteous and good, he will punish us for our sins, somewhat in this life, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless we have a Savior, unless we are forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, we will suffer eternally the wrath of God in that real place called hell. And yet, under these very circumstances, God, he nonetheless loved us. He loved us and did something to heal and to restore the relationship we destroyed. God provided a Savior for all people, a Savior who can actually forgive us and reconcile us to God. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son took on human flesh, just like yours and mine, yet without sin, born as a baby and given the name Jesus. Grew up and lived a perfect life of obedience to God, his Heavenly Father. He actually did give thanks in all circumstances. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that Jesus died a horrible death. When he's just in his mid-30s, he's arrested, he's nailed to a cross, he's hang, hanging there between heaven and hell, and he bleeds out for us and our salvation. And what the Bible teaches us is that it's on that cross that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God we deserved. He took the judgment, the punishment our sins deserved in our place. And this is how God could remain holy while forgiving us. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that our hope is not in vain. And now in response, he's offering to you 
forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to your creator, the sure and certain hope of heaven after this life, if you'll but trust in Christ. This is why Jesus came to earth to reconcile us to God, to secure our hope in heaven. And for those of us who have been saved, again, we have a sure, certain, unchanging, fixed reason to give thanks in all circumstances, no matter how life's going in other areas. So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Trust him now. If you've never committed yourself body and soul to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Turn from your sin, embrace his loving leadership. Rely on his death, rely on his resurrection, be reconciled to your creator. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust the Lord Jesus today as your Savior. And today, come to know this one great, unchangeable reason for which we can give thanks in all circumstances. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we do thank you so much for your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we really do believe that if everything else were to be taken away, if we lost absolutely everything, we would still have more than enough reason to give you thanks in all circumstances because of who he is and what he's done. We praise you for his wonderful divine nature, wonderful human nature, his wrath-bearing death, his glorious resurrection, and we thank you for the way that he did all of that for us in our salvation. We do pray that you would move in our hearts now, that we would rejoice in him, and that we would give thanks in all circumstances because of what he's done. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.